Hello, welcome to the Useful Marketing Podcast with me, Paula Ronan. Today I got to spend time with Paul Dervin. He's a bit of a marketing legend here in Ireland, and he's author of the very readable and inspirational marketing book, Running With Foxes. He's current Chief Marketing Officer at the National Lottery. This conversation takes place just a week before the end of his four-year stint there, and he's about to join Miro, the visual workspace for innovation. I really enjoyed listening to Paul share some of his insights and learnings from his very impressive career so far in marketing. I hope that you do too. Enjoy. Hi, Paul. You're so good for doing this for me. I really appreciate you joining me today. I'm happy to be here. Happy to chat. Yeah, Paul, I wonder if you just start out for people who might not be familiar with you, just telling us a little bit about um, what you do and a little bit about your background. Yeah, <laughs> we'll run out of time. So I um, so I am currently the, the chief marketing officer of the National Lottery in Ireland. Uh, and I've been there for about four years, and that is probably as you might expect in terms of a role. It's the, 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 the you know the areas that I you know that I tend to gravitate towards are this combination of consumer behavior, brand management, and then the raft of marketing communications and all aspects of that. That's ten. That tends to be where I where I where I where I try and make myself look as expert as possible, and. Um, and so I've been there for about four years and that's been really good. I'm actually leaving, as we said beforehand now, I'm leaving in a few days time um, and I'll be starting a new job looking after the kind of the brand marketing for a, for a company called Miro, which is a, a fascinating kind of tech brand that has been around for 10 years and has been explosive during the pandemic. I guess before all that, just before the lottery, I was actually technically, I like to consider myself unemployed um, because I, I wasn't working for about a year and a half. And I wrote my book at the time and I had twin boys who were very young and I was uh, basically hanging out with them, playing with them essentially. But I, I in previous jobs, I had I had been in very similar roles. I had I'd worked for about 10 years for O2 in Ireland and, uh, and I was like head of their brand um, when I was leaving. And then I'd worked for Telefonica, who owned O2, where I was kind of launching or trying to launch youth brands in Latin America. I did a small stint in online poker um, for a brand called Full Tilt, who are owned by Poker Stars, which is like the biggest poker brand in the world. Um, and I'd also done a couple of years, maybe about three years, for a very large job site called Indeed, which went through massive growth when I was there. And uh and actually, I was hired there to originally to, to do a, an experimental lab doing lots of different campaigns and try and figure out what works. And then I took a different kind of global brand role there. That's kind of me. Well, wow. You must be about 90, Paul, are you? After all that experience, you're looking well. You're looking very well on it. Uh, yeah, well, actually, the, the vast bulk of it was probably in the my O2 years. I did some agency side before that it makes me even older. But 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 uh, but yeah, I, I'm not 90, but I'm getting close. I'll tell you. Not at all, not at all. But you, you're cramming a lot in. Like um, I'm, uh, you know, it's a very impressive resume. I have to say, fantastic experience, and uh, the best of luck with Miro. And uh, how did you find your time at the National Lottery? Did you enjoy it? 
Yeah, I did. I did. I, I was very lucky in the sense that um, I have a wonderful CEO who, a man called Andrew, who um, is he's very strategic and he's very good and he's very smart. And he he and I agreed what we wanted to do. And then he just let me get on with it. And he he didn't micromanage or interfere or push his opinion on things. Uh, and we, you know, we were pretty good on metrics. So we would, I would show him here's, here's something I'm, here's something I've done. And here is what people think of it. And that's how we operated. So, which is a very nice place to be for someone like me, um, where there's a lot of trust. Uh, and so, you know, we, we wanted to, build and maintain and and grow the brand and 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 we wanted you know it to be a the iconic brand it should be and and uh so i got a chance to do a lot of that so yeah i liked it yeah brilliant and um paul you know i work with a lot of smes and actually mostly small businesses and micro businesses uh, in the southeast of Ireland, largely, but actually in Scotland and other places in the UK as well. And um, but I started my career in London and worked with some of the biggest brands like Coca Cola and uh, Sky and uh, brands like that. And what I uh, try to do a lot, a lot of the times, is take learnings from those massive brands and use them, shrink to fit, if you like, yeah, more uh, smaller. Uh, companies so like thinking about that and thinking about what you have learned over the years um i wonder what you feel might be applicable or how how people could you know translate concepts like uh the likes of uh, say measuring the effectiveness of campaigns for their businesses uh, I know it's not your, you've worked with lots of really big band, brands as well, but um, it'd be interesting to get your skew on that, um, measuring effectiveness. And the other thing um, that I have uh, was impressed by is you uh, focusing on the, for example, the It Could Be You slogan for the yeah. National Lottery as a distinctive asset. Yeah. Um, I can imagine that, that that was something that you might have got a bit of pushback on uh when you did it because maybe other people before you had pushed to get away from it yeah yeah i think it's a funny story that one the i, I like to, the truth is i didn't get any pushback but the the um that tagline had been part of the lottery up to about 2013 maybe and then it had been dropped um and and I have a particular interest in distinctive assets, and I was interested to find out which ones they had and things like that. And and we had just done some brand positioning work, and and once I was a, understood what the brand positioning was and what it was going to be, um, I started digging around, and the 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 tagline had been dropped, but I couldn't find any clear reasons why it had been dropped. Like no one really, no one had actively said it's no longer needed anymore. I think it's probably because the, the National Lottery had a couple of different brands and each had its own tagline. So Lotto, Euro Millions, things like that. Uh, and so so each had a tagline that was to try and and underpin the, the nuance of each product. Um, 
and and we did some research. We did some research with Red Sea, and what we discovered is that the tagline "It Could Be You" had huge levels of is a huge levels of attribution to the lottery in the sense that distinctive answers are done in the sense where if I if I say the words "It Could Be You," I want to know how many people could guess what the brand is. And so it's not it, it's not about it describing the brand, but more about does it bring the brand to mind? And and at the time, this is like in 2019, 2020, about 60% of people could already like attribute the brand to that tagline without it being used for seven years or six years. So so that was actually a reasonably easy one to figure out. And the only risk would be that. It didn't translate. The only risk would be, does it feel like you're going backwards? You know, so a lot of, a lot of this often is a lot of impetus for people to go forward and move brands forward. But 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 it actually turns out there's a lot of gold in 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 if you go back and look at the good days, the lottery with lots of gold there. So so actually there was no there was really no there was no big debates and and it's it's fully embedded and it's like I think the. On our last measure, I think it's like 90% of people in the country, if you say it could be you, they know who you're talking about. And the reason why it's important, Paula, is that people don't have an awful lot of attention and they don't pay a lot of attention to, to advertising. So anything you can to just, you know, nudge a little bit of extra attention. So that's 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 why it's important. Um, it's not like a lot of taglines are not that important because they don't they don't do anything for the business they're just something that the brand team know about nobody else can remember you know so on your other part of the question i would say that that so context always matters i think that lots of lots of things that you do for big brands you can't do for small brands and and but there are some and i think i think the broad principles like the ones in in your book behind you, the the broad principles are very important to know. Um, like like I study this an awful lot, and and regardless of what business you're in and what category you're in, you, you know you you got a better chance of growing if you can bring in new customers than believing that you can double down just on existing customers and you know just bring that deflection rate down like you need both but but you you'll see a lot of ideologies and businesses which is like if you can improve the satisfaction rate then you can really decrease the churn or deflection customers down to zero but just it just isn't true and and so if you don't continuously fill that leaky bucket that peter field talks about then you know you're going to find yourself um, like losing share. So those though, there are lots of really good broad principles. I I um I like the idea of not having rules because I think rules means you stop thinking and you apply thing you apply a rule from one context to another without really thinking it through. But I the idea of broad guiding principles I really like, which is. I'm going on the impression that growing growing penetration is really important unless I discover that it there's a reason why this isn't the case, you know. So that's brilliant. There's there's such a lot in in what you're um in what you're giving me, Paul. It's actually um really useful. I think that going back to what you were talking original talking about originally, 
uh, about the distinctive brand assets and why um, you went back to the It Could Be You in the National Lottery uh, makes me think about so many clients that I've worked with before that have said that they wanted to refresh their logo and change a radio ad uh, or change an ad creative or whatever, basically because they're fed up of it. Because, you know, that's the truth, isn't it? Because they're looking at it and they're like, oh my God, that again. And it takes a lot to be able to say to a small business owner uh, that, uh, you know, there's plenty, plenty of petrol left in that still. And that, customers have hardly noticed it. Yeah, or- yeah, it's true. It is true. Like like marketing teams are sick of looking at the ad before it goes live because they've seen it about a thousand times. Um, and also if you're living with a concept for a long time inside the business, you forget that, you know, your busy customers are, they're scantily aware of it and and are doing their best to avoid your advertising, unfortunately. Uh, and so, so yeah, like there's, I, I like one of the ways to get around that is like we have a we have a kind of a behavior that we talk about internally in our marketing function, which is like we 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 want to use evidence. So the the thinking is that we're we're evidence led in our approach. And so if someone says I think this isn't working or I think this isn't good, they're expected to have evidence to support their their hypothesis or their thinking and and. Um, there's a great there's a great quote I had in the book. It was from Professor Barwise, and he was quoting someone else. But he essentially, he was like, um, CEOs and CFOs are are they're like they're in in God we trust. Everyone else must bring data, and yeah. and, and you know it's kind of true. So I I start and the other thing is this: the important part is that if the evidence suggests you're wrong. You got to change direction. You can't. You can't dig, dig your heels in, and 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 that's really important because it's very, it's quite difficult to to announce that you've made a mistake, and that that you thought you were an expert in some area, and it turns out that you're what you're doing is is actively going in the wrong direction, and and that's that takes time and takes patience and takes kind of enough mistakes, but and I'm much better at it now than I used to be, but but. Uh, but that's important, you know. Isn't it ironic that you have to uh, build up enough confidence to be able to say that you know nothing? I know, I know. <laughs> it is true. And then, of course, that is the kind of paradox of it all, which is like, you know, like I do think if you're not making mistakes in marketing, you're probably not making any decisions in marketing. And, and, and it's not to glorify mistakes. I think the important part is to try and acknowledge you made a mistake to look for evidence like there's 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 a thing where you should you should you should try and look for evidence to disprove your hypothesis as opposed to prove it because all the biases kick in and things like that as well but if you can get good and impartial about about is this thing we're doing is it right or wrong um is it yeah, and right or wrong is quite binary. Is it, you know, how how good is this decision versus how bad is this decision? Um, and how correct are we versus how incorrect we are? If you can get good at that, and that takes practice, it's actually it's quite a it's you you don't you're not your identity isn't tied to it anymore. And and you can you can go, you know what, I'm a good marketer, but I made a mistake here. And and actually what's more important is to try and get to the underlying reasons you made the mistakes so that you 
are more prepared next time around. And and then I guess layered on top of that is how do you build a culture for a team to feel comfortable doing that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. I used to work uh, in London with a great guy called Trevor Rudder from Angel London. And we actually both uh, worked in a sales promotion agency uh, before that, which is a great, um, it's a great start in marketing yeah. because it makes you um, evaluate everything that you're doing. And there's very little glamour in it. But uh, he used to, uh, when we were running brainstorms, uh, he used to uh, hate the idea, that idea, oh, there's no such thing as a bad idea. And uh, we used to have to challenge each other. And uh, the idea was to get you to be able to defend whatever idea you came up with. But yeah. then, then at the end, to be able to let it go and to, to cha change tack. And it, it uh, really taught me the value of just um, be like you're in your book in your book, uh, Running with Foxes, uh, you're talking about uh, strong opinions loosely held. Yeah, yeah. It's like that to be able to give a great rationale to a position that you're taking, uh, but to be able to move that position based on somebody else making a stronger argument or evidence coming up. Yeah, yeah. And I think you can set yourself up to say, this is my opinion, and it's based on the following data points, or it's based on no data points, but this is my opinion. And I welcome, I welcome anyone that wants to, you know, see if they can find, it, you know, or, or like persuade me otherwise, you know, persuade me that I'm wrong. And I think that's important, because the more senior you get, if you don't do that, people won't do it, because they're like, well, you know, this is this is what he or she likes to do, and and we shouldn't try and you know a classic one is this: a lot of brands don't like to have humor in their advertising, and therefore their agencies won't pitch humorous, you know, humorous kind of um, advertising routes. And they probably know they would they could work or might work better. And they so, but they're just it's just it's called a defensive decision. You just there's no point in doing it because you don't want to get fired. So you just you just you just do what that person wants as opposed to challenging them to do something that might work better. And if that CMO said, listen, I don't think we want to do humor, but I welcome any any kind of debates and discussion that shows me a path forward, then 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 I'm up for it. So it, you, you kind of have to signal to people in an explicit way that that you know you do have a strong opinion, but it is weakly held. And I think that's that's uh that's a very clever, it's one of the behaviors we have inside um in our in a lottery in in the marketing function. And I, I can't remember who I stole it from, but I have a bunch of behaviors that I've I've picked up and fine-tuned over the years that I think help build the right type of culture. Very good. The the other thing um, I think might uh, help small business owner managers um, as well is well, what I find it's very hard for a small business owner uh, who are usually in charge of the marketing in their organizations uh, to stomach the thought of investing to any significant uh, level in brand marketing rather than in tactical marketing. Yeah. And, uh, you and I know that it does deliver down the line, but it's very hard as you say in the book as well, uh, we have to eat today, isn't that right? Uh, yeah. 
Yeah, so I don't blame them at all for having that position. It's their money. Um, and and I think that lots of brand activity can work, but a lot of it doesn't. So, so like the onus really is on the marketer to find a path forward. It, like you can't you can't blindly ask people to hand over their cash and to do something and just like let's just hope maybe something happens like it's just not it's just not credible um I, like you know i've become a fan of the idea of kind of like of, of placing bets so small bets big bets kind of bets you can't reverse out of um and and i and i think that you know a path forward is to try and figure out well what are the small bets so is there a way that is there a way that you can test like a, a media channel and and put some proper thinking into it? You know, like I was talking to someone recently, and they, you know, there was a bit of debate about whether they spent a couple hundred grand on advertising, and I was like, well, have you talked about what would happen if you did the campaign and it was it was like. It was if it got twenty percent of the sales that you thought it was going to get. Like so, if it if it failed drastically in your expectations, have you had a discussion about that? Because it's not a good place to be. And 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 sometimes the the thinking is, well, look, just trust us, be brave, and everything will be fine. Um, but it's 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 you know it's it's their money, and like so, I I do think that. The rigor should come on the marketer to do their best to say, right, well, what, 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 what would good look like, and how, what is the smallest amount of money that we can test to give us an indication? Because you can even extrapolate a little bit. You can go, okay, well, we do this. Let's, you like, there's some kind of jumps you have to make, which is, I was looking at this even this morning for someone else, but like, so if. Generally, a thesis goes along the lines of if we can raise awareness or, or some sort of brand health metrics, that sales will come. But what most owners want to know is how much does it cost to increase each unit of that brand health? Let's just say it's aided awareness. And the more important question is how much does each unit translate into extra customers' revenue profit? That work has to be done. It just has to be done, and and you you you, you the, often if you haven't done it before, you just don't know what that's going to be. So the only way forward is is to kind of take take some small bets and see if you can figure them out. Um, I I think that's a, that's a really really great point, and um, uh, I wonder because that that's something that I think a lot of people struggle with is how to do those sums and i think taking those small bets is a great way to to start that process and to have some kind of an idea i was just wondering what you feel about as or, or thinking what how ai is going to possibly help with things like that like with predictive analysis to be able to to um predict how much an ad campaign x in whatever channel uh, will deliver in terms of revenue to a company. 
Yeah, like I, I'm sure it will. I don't know. And like, I guess the thing about that is it'll speed things up and it'll it'll manipulate data a lot faster. Um, I don't really know yet how it'll do that. Um, but I know there's definitely a bunch of people trying to trying to show that that can work. Um, but um, like there's a woman called Kate Gra uh, Grace Kite who who runs Magic Numbers, and there's a kind of magic modeler who I've worked with who's amazing called Louise Cook. Um, and so there'll be a whole bunch of, of, of those in the analytical and the modeling who are trying to make it cost effective for small businesses to run some sort of modeling. Um, but, um, but I, I like, you know, often I tend to find that small businesses and even the marketers are working with, they they'll say, well, look, we need to grow the brand, but they don't have any baseline metrics in place. So like, you, you know, too often you hear people saying, well, we want to grow awareness, but they actually haven't even got awareness metric to start with. So, so it's just, it's, it's almost like a cop-out. It's like, we want to grow awareness, but by, by how much and how often and what types of awareness and, and and why and and i just feel that that it's it's kind of just brushed away it's like i always want to raise awareness but we won't actually do any because you can do proper diligence on is it going to be aided awareness okay is it going to be mental availability uh, you know from your book behind you is it going to be category entry points which is which is a measure of mental availability like what are the thing what are the ways that you actually are going to measure this when are you going to start measuring it in the first wave when are you going to measure it again? What's the increase going to be like? Um, are you going to expect decay happening after? So it, like, there's there's lots of very reasonable questions that you could put together and say, like I spoke, I was talking to a guy the other day who spends over a million dollars on advertising, and they didn't have, they didn't even take out a small fraction of that to put some metrics together. Um, who I wouldn't give anyone any money if they if they said we're going to raise awareness for your book and then didn't have a baseline measure and, and a before and after, I don't know do it either. You know, so, so I do think there's, I don't really believe in that kind of trust us, be brave kind of approach. I, like the, it's like big brands can afford to make big moves and big plays. Most big brands, their advertising communications is to protect market share. It's not even to grow. It's just to stop people from stealing share from them, which is the same as growing. But, but, but you you kind of forget that. I think it is. There's some interesting stuff about, you know, you know as well. But like the the stuff you do when you're a small business, you basically you use the most efficient metrics you can, or the ones you think are most efficient. And if you're if you're measuring a return on investment, you might go, well, look, let's do a load of ads on social media. Let's see how many sales come in. Let's divide the cost of the advertising by the, you know, divide the cost of the revenue by the advertising. And that's your ROI. Or if you're better, the profit from that. Um, that match, those measures and those channels, they all move into, into diminishing returns at some stage. So you just max out. It's only you start to see that your metrics are not as good as they used to be because you've kind of caught all those low-hanging fruit or competitions come in and taken some of them. And then you're going, oh, what are we going to do? Because we're not really, you know, we used to make money from our Google ads or our Facebook ads, but now actually they're more expensive. And for some reason, we're not getting any return on them. What do we do? 
you know, and inevitably that's when they turn to, well, should we be building awareness? You know, it, it, it's a natural kind of conclusion. The problem is you probably should have done it two years previously. So, 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 but it's easy, it's easy for me to say when it's not my money, you know. Yeah, well, that, that's, um, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I was just thinking about how evidence-based marketing is, uh, you know, it's so important and it, it, it's so effective and it feeds into, you know, a virtual circle. But uh, I think in my experience, uh, there's a lot of magical thinking about yeah. marketing and advertising and people always want they always want a magic wand and they love to hear stories of, you know, amazing, amazing successes with uh, social media idea or whatever that uh, will uh, transform the company. Um, but yeah, it's kind of um, trying to marry, I suppose, creativity with, with and brand stuff with that uh, scientific thinking. Yeah, like I'd be I'd be very wary of case studies because they're written by the, the winner for a start um, and written in in the memory of the winner. Um, uh, I interviewed Jenny uh, Romanuk for when I was writing my book and I asked her about some of the stuff and she was like, look, case studies are great. They they're illuminating and they're they they get people to, you know, to. That they're great to get people to think and give them stimulus and to get them excited about things they can do, but you can't base, you can't base, you can't say, well, that worked for Guinness. We're sorted. Like it's just, it's crazy. It's crazy to consider, like because you have to think of context. You got to think of place and time. You got to think of competition. You got to think so. Case studies are like anyone who says to me, well, it worked for them. Uh, I was like, I don't buy that for a second. As in, I, I'm sure it did work for them, but that is not a good, that is not a good grounding for we should, we should do what's been recommended right now. What, you know, if you, the folks in Edinburgh Bass would talk about and is, you know, for something to be a good gauge of success, it needs to be consistently giving you the same response every time you know over years across categories across time zones you know so that's for it to be predictable it needs to have like lots and lots and lots of of consistent results to say that something is now like a a, a science-like law you would you know like double jeopardy you know so yeah it like it is it's only after I guess, I don't know how much is hundreds, maybe thousands of replication that you can say something is law-like in its kind of marketing principle. We don't have that many marketing principles. There aren't that many laws from what I can tell. There's a bunch of law-like ones like double jeopardy and, 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 you know, even things like penetration, but, but generally it's, it's more of a social science than a science. There's a guy called Doug Cameron who I worked with, um, who wrote a great book with Doug Holt called um, Cultural Strategy. Um, and he talks about things that are science-y. So they look like science and they sound like science and they give you all the signals of science, but it isn't science. So it's science-y. And, and that's what you got to be careful of is science-y marketing. You know? Yeah, uh, it's funny, isn't it? Because uh, I was just thinking 
there really isn't that much research done. All of the money spent on marketing all over the world, there isn't really that much research done on its effectiveness and what works and what doesn't. And the stories that we generally hear are about the amazing successes. We don't hear the stories of the failures very often. Yeah, and there's, a good, there's a good reason for it. You know, no one likes to talk about their failures too often. Obviously, I wrote an entire book about mine, but the, the, um, the yeah like there's a lot more research than there used to be and and the the there's potentially arguably a gap between what's in academic journals and what marketers use um because it's it's sometimes it's hard to digest and to to you know um, make sense of it um in fairness to the Ehrenberg class like their their stuff is really really good and you know others you know like Peter Field and Lesbonet and and a lot of other people who are diligently trying to to do that like the ipa cases are always very good i used to i was reading one this morning but i used to read a lot of the ipa cases because they generally have some really good robust thinking and measurement um and they're really good training for marketers i think is to work their way through it like, like a gold ipa case you know uh, and uh, the other thing i was going to say is that uh, jenny romanowick yeah She's a great lady to come and give you a big kick in the arse. <laughs> she's a lovely woman, though. I, I don't know if I've met her personally. I, like I interviewed her when I was when I was writing the book, and and uh, a colleague of mine was talking at the research um, ASMR stuff in Amsterdam last week, and he went up and said hello to her because he was on stage as well. Um, I think she's lovely. Um, she's she has a she has a very nice way of you know letting people know that what they're talking about it may not be legitimate yeah <laughs> well you know it just reminded me about um a hundred years ago uh when um working with trevor rudder there again in london we were uh doing a job for kiss fm that was owned by emap at the time i think it's now bauer media and uh mother the ad agency uh, had just um been uh, taken on to do the creative, to do the above the line advertising. And yeah. the story was that they, in their pitch, all they had was one sheet of paper uh, with Live Sexy written on it. <laughs> and they were just saying, in the pitch, it was like, the pitch didn't last very long, like 20 minutes or something. They just said, now what we're going to do is Live Sexy. We <laughs> tell everyone to Live Sexy. And, uh, you know, I was just thinking that there's so much trust in that agency and in their reputation and in the people by the client to make them buy into that campaign and just go, yeah, we're going to do it. Nowadays, I'm not sure that that would happen. Like the campaign did work uh, and we we uh, supported it with a whole range of uh, different activity, marketing activities, but I, I'm not sure that that would actually happen today. Yeah, I, like it depends on... Um the current situation like i think often like if things are going really well it goes back to these bets if things are going really well and you know you've had a good run then you know you can take a bit of a bet and go you know what it's a little bit crazy it probably won't work but like what's the downside the downside is you you know you, you get unlucky but you've had like four years of really good work and you know or like we're my last campaign for the lottery. I've uh, finished making it now, and it, it won't be live for a while. But it's a really big campaign. 
it's not the kind of one you take risks on. You 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 really need to think it through. You can't be you can't. There's some bets that if you get them wrong, they take you down. You know, like they they sink the ship. Um, I don't mean the lottery. Like the lottery's too big for that. But like it could sink your career. Um, and uh, so you kind of have to know the context to go. This is worth a punt, or this is way too big. To I'm not saying. Um, ironically enough, it's it's a lot of the more rational advertising, which is really high risk because it's really you won't get fired, but you won't do it won't do that well. So people make these defensive decisions where they go, "I'm not going to do this because it could be great, but it could it could kill me off." While um, while no one is going to fight with you for doing a rational campaign because you know, everybody does them and they, you know, they make sense to the accounts department and stuff like that. So I do think it depends on where you are in the context, but like, I, I don't, I don't like when agencies, um, I don't like when they are hard sell on a, on the basis of trust. I, and I work with a group of people who I've worked with for 10 years or so, like a really top end creative people who but like they can quote you byron sharp's book they can they can quote you orlando's book they they understand distinctive assets incredibly well they understand category entry points they understand storytelling they understand uh, like the active attention versus passive and these are creatives they understand all these things and so they work within constraints and they do great work um and i do trust them incredibly but it isn't a free pass. It's like, here's why we think it might work. Not, it's going to work, just like, let's stop producing things, you know? Yeah. yeah. Very good. So, um, uh, Paul, I was just wondering, especially now that you're going to be leaving uh, the National Lottery, I we, we touched on it uh, today already, but um, I also love in the book where you're talking about learning from mistakes and baking failure into what you're doing um, yeah. i just wondered what do you think are the biggest uh the, the biggest mistakes you've made <laughs> well what you've learned most from or the mistakes that you've made that you've learned most from well i don't know about trade my life i'll give you a recent one if it's helpful um like a, there's a bunch of them in the book as you'll come across um um earlier on this year we made a campaign that um that i pulled before we went live now for context most of our campaigns are really good they're above average they're they're successful <laughs> they're really high quality and uh, and we measure them against all sorts of good metrics and so as i'm comfortable that they that objectively speaking they're they're well above average um but we made a campaign this year and uh, we went all as far as producing it and everything so there was production it was made and then we tested it creatively using um a, a creative testing platform that system one use so it's called system one and it didn't we normally test really well and it didn't test that well and and that i i knew it wasn't as good as some of our best ones but i still thought it would be pretty good it would sort of be funny and stuff and we went to we went to figure out what was going on and we did some additional research um where we managed to get back kind of qualitative feedback from a large group of people it's kind of a quasi quant piece of research and what we discovered is about 10 percent of people didn't like the campaign um 
Now, we're a really big brand that has a lot of oversight and people have a lot of views on it and we have really high penetration. And and 10% of people not liking the campaign is a big deal um, for us. For other people, it wouldn't matter. Like if Paddy Power, you'd expect at least 50% to not like it. That's how you trade, you know, and that's what they try and do and, and they're great at it. So I had a good think about it and I was like, yeah, where it's it one would be inefficient because it like the more the better the work is, the more efficient it is in terms of return on your on your investment. So so I just spend money on creative production, but I didn't want to go waste media spend on it because that's just doubling down on a bad decision. So so I pulled it. I told my CEO that I'd made a mistake. And and then I we discussed why we think we made the mistake and and it's my mistake because I I'm ultimately the decision maker and all these things, and and then I asked could I do a town hall to explain to all employees what the mistake I'd made and why I'd made it and I showed some of the data and explained what what we were doing to make sure it doesn't happen again and some of the bits that we were able to you know fix in post and things like that and. Uh, and that was it. And I did it because one, I were very quick to tell everybody inside about when we do good work and we're very proud of it. And it would be odd if people found out a campaign hadn't gone live, they hadn't heard about it. And I needed my team to know that we will make mistakes occasionally and that we will learn from them. And and they're hard. Like it's it's like it's it's easy to say learn from mistakes. It's gut-wrenching to realize you've made one and that you now have to face up to it and take the heat. And 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 that's not even like my I don't worry about my identity and this stuff because I because I've been around long enough. So I I I'm confident enough in my abilities, but I I had made a mistake and and we identified the mistake we made and why, and we you know, we are it won't happen again. Um, it was it was a performance mistake, so it was in the actual making of the ad. Um, but but that's tough. Um, but that's that's um, we have a good enough environment where I know I'm not going to get fired for doing something like that, and and my team will understand that the greater good is is to to not pretend it was okay. And then put media spend behind it because that's just that's just you know putting bad money after after good, and so that's you know there's a there's a one that's still kind of raw, it's still kind of raw. It's not that long ago. It's only it's only six months ago, um, and uh, and not to mention the work and effort that we went into it. You know, like it's a full on campaign. So so I, I can't remember your question as as I'm as I'm and drowning in my tears thinking about my uh, my mistake but the I do think it's important and I don't know 10 years ago how good I would have been to once I realized what I'd done to, to the following actions which is you know make a decision make the hard decision go fess up and then go tell everybody um, this is what happened. Like no one's asking me. No one asked me to go talk to the town hall. I, I asked, could I go do it? And I didn't tell them what I was presenting. I said I wanted to. I wanted to on next Monday's town hall. I'd like to talk for a few minutes about one of our campaigns. No. Well, fair fair play to you, Paul. That that took a lot of guts, I'd say. 
Well, not really, because it goes back down to the culture of the environment. Like, it doesn't really, it doesn't take us, like, it's not fun, but it wasn't, uh, like, it wasn't, it's not, it's not enjoyable and fun, but I, like, I have the, the trust of our CEO and, and I, and I genuinely believe that people will make mistakes. Uh, the only thing I can say is I'm glad we made it on something that wasn't going to, to like, like there are really big campaigns and there are smaller campaigns. And, and if this had been a really big campaign, like it was still TV, like it wasn't, wasn't like a Facebook ad. Um, so, but you know, in terms of what we planned with this campaign, it wasn't, it wasn't as big as some of the other ones we do. So, so that would be even a harder mistake to, to suck up to, but, but yeah. Well, well done. I hope it was just like an investment in the future that, I have hundreds more mistakes. We just don't have time for that. <laughs> well, I'm I'm sure I could match every one of them. But look, uh, I think um, we've uh, had a great chat, and I really appreciate your your taking time. I you've given me so many great points to think about and to share with the audience of um, of the podcast, and uh, I appreciate it. Is there anything else that you want to uh, say on this the the eve of your time <laughs> you definitely should play the lottery but the now, what i would say is that i i think that the you know continuously learning and be is is really the, the the only way forward the like the when we think about how to become like we set out to be the most effective marketing team in the country and, and i think we are one of them um and and we did that by being very explicit about the behaviors that we needed to as a team, um, like this idea of strong, strong opinions weekly held. Um, and but you know, part of that is this expectation that everybody would get to a really high bar on knowledge. And knowledge alone isn't going to sort you out. You need the behaviors, but but you can't function at a high level, a high bar of excellence if you're not willing to learn and be continuously curious about these things and, 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 and expect everybody around you to get to that bar. So we, we, we have this great behavior, which is um, hard on the work, easy on each other. And this is, this is something we, we, we work through with, with our agency and everyone else. And, but the first part's really important, which is we really don't as a group, we will not, we will not tolerate among ourselves work that isn't very good we just won't do it without the thinking needs to be good the credit needs to be good and we won't accept mediocrity uh, among ourselves but also we won't have a go at each other and 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 have some level of arrogance because it's hard to do really good stuff all the time and and so the expectation is if you're in the room it's because you're good enough and just because there's a different opinion about the work on the table that is not something to have a go at someone about. It's just to be very clear and say, I don't think this is good enough because of the following reasons. Let's fight and debate. Um, but but everybody, everybody in the room is in the room because they have a high level and they can't be in the room unless they get themselves to a really high level. And uh, and that makes, and as long as you, and so the easy on each other is important because it's it's easy for me to critique some work. It's very hard to pick up a pencil and write it. And, and, and so you know it, it's important that we appreciate that that 
that you separate like, your own identity from what we're looking at. And, and therefore people get used to that and they get used to going, I think this is an amazing creative team. I just don't like the work today. And I think it's not good enough for the following reasons. And there's no, there's no like, well, it's okay. If it's not okay, like there's no, like I, I will say, listen, I, I actually, I think this is, this is really mediocre. I don't like this at all. And they're like, yeah, it's Paul, because you've no vision. <laughs> like, okay, maybe. And that's how it goes. But there isn't any politeness. It's, it's, and that's not to say for a moment that I don't think they're brilliant. In fact, I continue to work with them for the last 10 years. And, 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 and so getting that level of comfortableness around the team, everybody gets a really high bar and, and everybody learns to be nice to each other and learns to not take it personally if their opinion happens to be different to someone else's opinion. That's a great, great attitude uh, to have, especially, you know, when in marketing, there can be sometimes a lot of uh, ego, uh, especially when, you know, people are involved in work like that. Um, they're used to being uh, critiqued and judged and whatever. So, uh, but well, well done with that. That's brilliant. You did a fantastic job. The National Lottery work is just fantastic. It's fantastic because it's so entertaining and I think what I love about it is that it seems that everything is based on the truth. It is the truth about how people uh, feel to me uh, about what's great about the the national the national lottery, and it really uh, sticks with you. So you're leaving behind a great legacy. Uh, Thank well, you. And, and well done on the book. Like I said uh, before we started recording there, I'm really enjoying the book, rereading it. I think it gets worse as the chapters go by, actually. So so you've probably got the best of it. Um, Are you going to write another one, Paul? I don't think so. I, I was quite a slow writer. Um, and um, we'll see. I take a lot of notes. So, um, so I'm always taking notes of stuff. Um, so we'll 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 see, but I I don't really have any plans to I don't have any plans to I'm very happy with it and I really and I get really good feedback on it, um, but I I I don't know if I have the uh, I don't know if I have a second book in me. Yeah. I I'd say so. Actually, you're only young, yes. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Uh, listen, thanks a million. Uh, I really appreciate it. And best of luck with your new venture in Miro. And uh, I look forward to hearing about all your adventures there. Great. Thanks, Paula. All right. Cheers, Paula. Well, I really recommend that you buy Paul's book, Running with Foxes, straight away. This interview is just a tiny taster of the great wisdom he has to share. It's available in lots of online shops. I got an audio version from Apple Books, and I'm on my second listen of it. Best of luck to Paul. Hopefully we'll see another book from him of his further adventures in marketing someday soon. Thank you for listening. I hope you found this useful.